in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're going to read the last verses of that chapter and then verse 1 of chapter 9. So Mark 8, verse 34, through verse 1 of chapter 9. Mark 8, 34, this is God's word. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the, with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come. With power. Let's pray together. Father, instruct us in your word, O Lord. Bless its preaching and proclamation from this pulpit today. Give us hearts that uh, are open, minds that are clear to understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would change us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think in every uh, profession or every calling, uh, there are unique things uh, about that particular profession. And uh, if you're in a particular profession and you know others who are in that profession, you probably have conversations that... uh, Uh, where you're talking about the work that you're doing and uh, those on the outside might not always follow or those would be unusual conversations for those who are outside of your profession. And I just want to say that the same thing is true in ministry. And as pastors, we get together and, and, you know, we talk about our work, uh, our calling, our profession, and uh, we have certain ways of saying things that uh, probably are, might seem a bit unusual uh, to uh, other people who uh, do not share that same profession and calling. Uh, for instance, I had a friend who, uh, I think he was repeating this from one of his professors in, in seminary, but who said uh, that preachers, when you come to the pulpit, you just simply dust off the pulpit and throw a fit. And that was uh, the description of uh, apparently good preaching. Dust off the pulpit and throw a fit. I'm not sure I follow that uh, particularly, uh, that, that ideology and that thought of, of preaching. But there's another one, actually, that I do think is very helpful. And that, that one says that good preaching comforts the afflicted, but it also afflicts the comfortable. It comforts the afflicted, but afflicts the comfortable. 
And I say that because I think we are at a passage that might afflict the comfortable. You might recall Peter, uh, earlier in chapter 8, made this great profession. Jesus asked, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. But then it was very clear, just following that, uh, in verses 31 and following, that Peter didn't quite really understand what that meant. And Jesus had to make clear that, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He is the prophet, priest, and king which all of which Christ means, Jesus is that, but that he is the suffering servant and that he came into this world to suffer and to die and to rise again. And Peter then, it, it, that, that just was, that didn't fit in his mind, that, that the Messiah, the promised one of God, the anointed one of God would suffer and die. And so Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Because, of course, Peter knew better than Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus, in turn, rebuked Peter. He said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking the things of God, you are thinking the things of man. And, uh, and there, Jesus. Uh, recognize that the temptation, that the temptation that Satan, with which Satan tempted him in the wilderness, that is, you can have all the glory without going to the cross. That that temptation was precisely what Peter was doing. But now Jesus, in the passage that we just read, verse 34 and following, Jesus is, is continuing that thought, that explanation. Before, he was speaking privately to his disciples. Now, he calls a crowd together along with the disciples. There's something very important here. Everybody needs to hear this. That I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. that I am and will be despised and rejected by men, and that I will suffer and give my life for many. That's, that's me. And if you're going to follow me, you also need to take up your cross and follow. The servant is not greater than his master. And so Jesus is continuing that thought of suffering and saying, listen, to follow me, that's, that's your life as well. What does it mean to follow a Messiah, a Christ who will suffer and die and rise again? What does it mean to be a Christian? We're getting into some very basic questions here. What does it mean to be a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian? Well, we can answer that and say, well, we are those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. And yes, that is true. 
But the Bible teaches more than that. The Bible is bigger than John 3.16. Now, we love John 3.16. But the Bible tells us more. And here Jesus is telling us that we are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not only that we profess the true faith, it is that we possess it. <laughs> That's vitally important. That's one of the things that, you know, when, when we have a, a, a profession of faith or when we have people coming to our church as, as, as new members, that's one of the things I want to press. It's wonderful to profess the truth, but do you possess it? Do you possess it? And when you possess the true faith, when you possess Jesus Christ, that is a life-changing thing. You are one who is being conformed and conforming to the image of your Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's believing, but being conformed. And ours, in this world, is a theology of the cross. There are voices in the Christian world today that have a, a theology of glory. Now, we do have a theology of glory, but that's a, that's a theology, theology that is eschatological. It is, it is future. But when we're living in this world, in this world you will have tribulation, Jesus says. And the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, Jesus says. So we have a theology of the cross where we are taking up on our, to ourselves the cross that Christ himself took up. There are voices today that speak about, you know, health, wealth, victory. We're saying no. We were never promised health and wealth by Jesus. Now, we are promised that in the new heavens and the new earth. We are promised wonderful things where there will be no more sickness and sorrow and pain. And so that is our glory, and we look to that. But in this world, in this life, we're not promised that. We're not promised that. In fact, quite the opposite. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's believing, most certainly. But it's also being conformed to the image of our Savior. And this is what Jesus here is saying. Following Jesus. Following Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Following Jesus means that you are being redefined, or you are redefined. Jesus, I think, is giving a definition here of a follower of Christ, of a Christian. This is Christianity 101, Jesus is giving us. 
If you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, in that culture, one's, one was defined primarily by the, the family, their family roots, their, their, their kin, their relation, as well as their religious identification and affiliation, and, and also, to a great degree, the work that they do and, and, and so forth. That was all what defined people. And it's, it's very similar in our day today as well. But Jesus is saying that one who follows me will be defined by self-denial and cross-bearing. Now, I don't believe that these are two different things. Denying yourself and taking up your cross, I think, are two ways of describing the same thing. Calvin says self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. This doesn't mean we no long we, we are no longer who we are. I mean the fact that I am a, a, a believer and a and a Christian uh, doesn't change the fact that I am also the son of my parents. <laughs> I will always be that. Uh doesn't change the fact that uh I uh am a male, that I am light of skin, uh, northern European descent. None of that changes. I'm of, I'm of that race. None of that has, it changes by coming to Jesus Christ. Married, single, race, gender, all of that doesn't change. But what happens is by, by coming to Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are unreservedly committed to the person and cause of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. That's our identity. Unreservedly committed to Jesus and his cause, whatever the cost. So following Jesus means that you are redefined. You're defined differently. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. You, you, you're defined differently. And there is a cost. There is a cross. Taking up your cross. The cross is an instrument of execution. It's a bloody Symbol. It's a bloody thing. It's, a, it's bloody torture. And therefore, to take up your cross sounds very daunting. But Jesus is saying this intentionally so that we would understand that there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, that cost can be minor or it can be major. It can be relatively minor. We, I think uh, as, as Christians, there, there's the minor cost of putting a priority on the means of grace, of gathering together for worship. You think about that. Clearly, God calls his people to worship him. 
it, it, it seems to me it's a minor cost to set your alarm on Sunday mornings to make sure you're at worship. That's not major. That's minor. Giving sacrificially for the cause of the gospel, for the kingdom of God, through our tithes and our offerings. That's minor. That's a, it's real, it's a cost, it's, but it's minor. Being involved in the, in the, in, in the, the, the fellowship and in the, the family of God in your local church, this is, these are minor costs, as it were. And there are major costs. It may be that, and has been, that there are those who have lost their jobs because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their commitment to the gospel. Major costs. There have been those uh, who uh, have given their lives, who've been rejected by family and by their communities because they have followed Jesus. Probably most of us haven't had to deal with that. But there are those who do. In Nigeria, the numbers are about 2,400 Christians were martyred by the Muslim Fulani in 2018. And if you watch the news, that has not dwindled. That continues in 2019. There are believers, Christians, being martyred for their faith around the world today. We don't live in places like that. And we shouldn't feel guilty that we don't live in places like that. That is in God's providence. We are living at this particular time in the United States when we don't have enemies killing Christians at least not much. But we are still called to follow Jesus. To take up our cross. To deny ourselves. And to follow Jesus. And cross-bearing is not an end to itself. Uh, that's very important. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow Jesus. That's what we're doing, following Jesus. It's, the Christian life is fundamentally relational. We follow Jesus. A person. Christ. Now, there's a couple of dangers there. there. There are some who say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, uh, and I have no creed but Christ. No creed but Christ. It sounds so pious. But please understand, it is mindless, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, that is mindless stupidity. No creed but Christ. It is mindless stupidity. This is not what Christ calls us to. When uh, uh, Peter 
said, you are the Christ, that had a wealth of meaning for Peter to say that. You are the Christ meant that you are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. You are our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king. That's what you are. There was a depth of meaning in those words. And in the uh, parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked, who do, people, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. Man didn't reveal that to you, but God who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Peter. You understand, you see, to follow Jesus is not just to follow some idea. It is, it is to follow the Christ who is. And he's not a creedless Christ. I think I've said this before. If I told you I love my wife, and then you were to say, well, tell me about your wife. If I had no way of answering that question... You would wonder, really? Do you, do you really love your wife? Or if I gave wrong answers? Well, she's five foot nine, got black hair. <laughs> Those of you who know my wife would say, "What? Well, I think you're thinking about somebody else. <laughs> That's the whole the point. We can't say no creed but Christ. Christ. There's weight to who Christ is. There's definition to who Christ is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. These are matters of first importance. My only point is, if somebody says, I have no creed but Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't, you know, I don't want creeds, I don't want to eat any of that, all you have to do is say, well, tell me about Jesus. And as soon as they say, well, Jesus, he's the son of God, uh, and uh, God sent him into this world to save me, uh, who, he died on the cross, well, that's creedal. That's, that's just simply creedal. That, that's, you're, you're speaking now biblical truth about who Jesus is. So my point is we can't just say follow Jesus and have no, no content in that. That, that. That's just simply an impossibility, and it's not really following Jesus then. There's no such thing as a creedless Christ, is my point. So that's one danger. But there's another one, and that is, in a sense, forgetting that Jesus is a person. In other words, I guess what I want to say here is that we can be followers of theology and creeds apart from the person. Uh, I think in my life I've run across a few who are like this. And uh, I think there, that if there's a tendency, at least in our, uh, I guess we would call it conservative, reformed, confessional churches... Uh, this would be the greater tendency. We, we are, we're not those who say no creed but Christ. That's not our temptation. But we might be this way, all creed, no Christ. 
Oh, I love the theology. I love the Reformed faith. I love the Reformed heritage, which, praise God, we do. We, we are such blessed, blessed uh, benefactors of those who have gone before us and who have dealt through all of these things. But our following Christ is, is not merely mental. It's not merely doctrinal. He's a person. So I come back and say, yes, you love theology. You love, you love the doctrines of sovereign grace. You love the, you know, the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort, Belgic Confession. Praise God. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because these two must never be separated. You cannot separate the person of Christ from Christology, the doctrine of Christ. So we need to beware of loving the theology and not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says, follow me. It's costly. It can be minor in its cost. It can be major in its, in its cost. But I just want to say this. If you cannot pay the cost when it's relatively minor, how do you think you'll do if it becomes major? Following Jesus is redefining of who we are, it is costly, but it is also eternal life. And Jesus makes this clear in verses uh, 35 and following, where he gives us really three reasons or three motivations. Taking up your cross, he used that word intentionally. That's a difficult, hard thing. And it's daunting. That instrument of execution, that's bloody torture. But he gives us three reasons or three motivations, all beginning with the word for. First of all, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That is what Jesus is saying is, if you follow me and you deny yourself and take up your cross... If you lose your life in that way, you will save it eternally. Serious. He said the fullness and the richness of life will not be found except through self-denial and cross-bearing, ultimately. Now, we need to be careful. Jesus is not teaching us that it is by our cross-bearing that we are saved. He's not saying that cross-bearing merits salvation. We need to be careful there and not go there. But rather, cross-bearing is so identified with belonging to me that non-cross-bearing means you don't belong to me. Those words are unsettling. Cross-bearing manifests the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. 
it manifests that, that faith that unites us to Jesus Christ. It's a, the actual, where the rubber meets the road, evidence of our faith. This is serious stuff here. Jesus gives these three motivations. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's the first motivation. The second is, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? See, Jesus is saying we need to live in light of eternity. We need to live in light of eternity. This world is not all that it is, we have. This world is not all that there is. In fact, the time we spend in this world is very small compared to eternity. And so what have you gained if you were able not to deny yourself? You were able to amass all kinds of riches and uh, all kinds, you know, all, everything else, fame, whatever it might be, you are able to do that. You gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul. What have you gained? What are you going to pay for your soul? There's nothing. What have you gained? And Jesus' third motivation is this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words here, I will be ashamed of him in glory. I don't think it'd be very, I don't, I don't think any of us would feel very good if Jesus is ashamed of us. I don't want Jesus on that day to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want to be ashamed of Jesus. Cross-bearing is demanding. It's daunting. But it seems to me if somebody were to ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? The answer is one who so loves and follows Jesus that they are willing to die for Jesus. Are you willing to die for him. And Jesus then says, yes, and you will live, will truly live for eternity, and I will not be ashamed of you. The thing, it seems, that Jesus here is saying is either you embrace Jesus you deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow him, or you're ashamed of him. It seems to me, as I read this passage, that those are the only two options Jesus is giving us. Are you truly a follower of me? Because that's what it looks like, taking up your cross, denying yourself, or are you ashamed of me? Those are really the only two options. 
We can't say, oh, Jesus, I want to follow you, but it, it, it really has to be on my own terms. Because in that sense, you're really ashamed of him. But this is the Lord's way. This is what it means to be uh, pilgrims. This is not our home. In this life, we will go through struggles and hardships. We are called to self-denial. Even, it seems to me, the little bit of self-denial it takes to set your alarm early enough to come to church on Sunday mornings. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. This is God's purpose to conform us to Jesus and to overlay the pattern of Jesus on you and me. This is why I think Jesus follows his whole description that the Son of Man must suffer. Now he says, so too, my followers. The congregation, in saying all of that, God is good and kind. He is conforming us into the pattern and likeness of Jesus in this Christian life. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us in the way. He gives us his word that we can gather on the Lord's day to be, be comforted and to be, be strengthened in the word. And he gives us his people so that we're not walking alone and we're not suffering alone and denying self alone, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage us along the way. The Lord is good and kind with these things. But remember, Paul prayed that his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, his thorn in the flesh be removed. And he prayed that repeatedly, and God's answer to him was no. You're going to keep suffering with that weakness. But my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God has his purposes, and his purposes are good. And his grace is sufficient for us. But ultimately, it comes down to this, congregation. This is why I think verses 34 and following follow the verses just before. The point is, the servant is not greater than his master. The master came, of course, in a far greater, far, far deeper, far more wonderful way, uh, but he came denying himself and taking up his cross. The servant is not greater than his master. And if you are my servant, Jesus says, if you will come after me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us, Lord, for being so comfortable in our comfortable lives.
and not taking seriously what it means to follow you. Forgive us, O Lord, for our North American laziness and having a couch potato Christianity, just growing fat. Father, prick our hearts, we pray. Give us a greater and deeper conviction that we are your servants and are willing, O Lord, to give all to follow you. We thank you that Christ gave his all to save us and to redeem us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.